So what prompted me in this new study is um, a message I did uh, on Daniel several weeks back in our deeper series. And I wanted to explore a little bit more, not just of the individual Daniel, but the book that is attributed to his name. So when we finished our last study and we took a few weeks break, it gave me an opportunity to do a little bit of footwork and research on some things. And this is a uh, book that usually has a lot of interest, uh, but I think in looking at it again, it's probably uh, all because of the hype of using the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation for kind of a left behind type of theology. What I want to do over the next several weeks is I want us to kind of come back to this book and understand what it meant to its original audience and what message did it carry uh, to them and then how do we apply the particular information that's in the book. So tonight what I want to do is just give you an introduction and over the next uh, 12 weeks that follow, I just want to take one chapter each week on Wednesday night, kind of sort through it, talk about it, and understand a little bit of the content that's there. So tonight, in some ways, is probably going to be the hardest uh, for us to get our hands around, only because of the way we often think of Bible books. And tonight, I want us to uh, take a look at what the book of Daniel is. And as we do that, I think one of the things that you're going to find is it's a lot different type of book than maybe what you have been taught, uh, especially from an evangelical type of perspective. So tonight's going to be an introduction into some of the work that has been done for years and years by scholars trying to figure out what this book is about and uh, what are the components of it, and how does it relate to its audience? So as we get started tonight, uh, what I want to do is uh, tell you that one way to remember the book of Daniel, uh, in, it goes back to an old commercial. How many of you remember uh, the old double mint uh, gum commercials that were on TV uh, many years ago? Two, two, two and one, right? Um, that is the book of Daniel in many respects. It's two pieces of information or material that's put together into one book. And you'll see what I mean, not only by the different components of it, but uh, also uh, the message that comes out of it. It, it does relate to uh, two different eras that's being represented in the book. So having said that, Let's get started and just feel free to ask any questions or interrupt me anytime you'd like. Um, this information here is something that I think, again, will be probably the most difficult to handle. Uh, but if we have this down, then what we'll be able to do is understand the chapters as they unfold a little bit easier. So one commentator said this is one of the four strange books of the Old Testament. And the question is why? Well, he says Jonah, Daniel, Ecclesiastes, and Esther are four very different types of stories, and they represent different types of traditions. So Jonah, 
there is really no historical evidence outside the book itself of this individual named Jonah. And the way it unfolds, it is something that seems to be like a stage play, the way it is written. And it counteracts really the message of the prophet Nahum. Um, so that's one reason he, he says it's strange. Um, another reason is Ecclesiastes, because it appears to be so negative. Vanity, vanity, all is vanity. And Esther, because there's no mention of God. But the book of Daniel is strange because it seems to be combining two different literary types, two different types of messages, two different chronologies, two different settings. And um, so you can see on the screen here, in the book of Daniel, you have narrative, which is story, and you have apocalypse, which um, most people think of that as end time prophecy. Really what that means is something that was secretive or unknown is being unveiled. And so the info that is coming usually is represented in apocalyptic genre as coming from without the human experience, from heaven to earth, if you will. The two conflicting messages that you find in the book of Daniel is, number one, catastrophic, that there is the prediction of coming judgment upon the nations, and yet at the same time, there's a redemptive element that you find in the book that talks about God being in control of history, that the kings of the nations cannot thwart God and his uh, purposes on earth. Now, the two different chronologies, ostensible uh, and historical, are two different ways of looking at the same material. So uh, if you've ever heard of the word um, midrash, you'll find that Jewish people uh, build upon stories. So many of the stories that are early in the Bible have been reshaped. And so the idea of ostensible is uh, it appears to be history or appears to be true, but there's hesitancies because some things don't fit historically into the way it's being told. The other element is historical in the fact that these individuals and these events occurred in time. Now, the way to think about the book of Daniel is the two different settings. The first part, chapters one through six, introduces us to Daniel. He's exiled in Babylon, which occurs in the sixth century, uh, between 666 and 594 uh, BCE. And then the second half of the book, starting in chapter seven through 12, are visions of, of something that is foreseen but you'll, we'll see in the uh, weeks ahead that it is not talking about end time as in all the way to the end of the eschaton. What it's talking about is the second century and what is anticipated in light of what is coming and what is occurring historically. Now, here's a real in interesting fact about the uh, book of Daniel. The book of Daniel is not grouped together in the Hebrew Old Testament with the prophets. It is the very last book that is added to the Hebrew canon, and it is uh, believed to be the very last book that is written. And that's why there's two languages in the book. So chapter one is in Hebrew. Chapters two through uh, six are in Aramaic. 
And in chapter 7 through 12, you have Hebrew again. So the Aramaic language is a much later language uh, that comes along. And it's interesting that in the original manuscripts, the Aramaic, which was kind of the vernacular language, even on into Jesus' day, it's believed that uh, Jesus spoke Aramaic. He probably knew some Greek a little bit. Um, and of course, he knew some Hebrew because he was a Torah observing Jew. But probably um, most of his teachings uh, were done in Aramaic. And that kind of reflects back to the beginning of the introduction of this language in the book of Daniel. Uh, then you have these heroes, Daniel and his three friends, that are presented as part of the exile in Babylon, but the description that about what they're going through seems to be representing to the Jews of a later date uh, the persecution they're undergoing during the time of Antiochus Epiphanes. Um, so uh, all of these things make the book of Daniel uh, difficult because you're moving uh, around a little bit and trying to figure out where this is taking place and how it fits. So having said that, um, we will take our time and come back to some of these things occasionally in the different chapters, and I'll point them out. But for tonight, I just want us to think about Daniel as scripture for a moment. So there's a lot of different types of literature that makes up scripture, but Daniel has a unique place. It's interesting that even though in the, our English Old Testament, we consider him one of the major prophets, along with Isaiah and Ezekiel and, uh, um, and Jeremiah. But that's not how Hebrew uh, uh, Jewish people view the book. Uh, they view it as part of the writings. So in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Old Testament, you have Torah, you have the Nephilim, uh, which are prophets, and then you have the writings. So you have uh, the law, the prophets, and the writings. And uh, that's where the word Tanakh comes from. But it reflects a lot of various themes. So you have some books that build upon things that have come very early in the Hebrew Old Testament, but it reflects a later time, much later time. And so uh, Jewish people have placed the book of Daniel at the very uh, end of their canon and um, and consider it to be part of the writings rather than part of the prophets. Uh, the author uses existing material, and we'll get into this at various times. There are similar stories that are in other uh, Semitic languages that um, seem to be drawn upon. We have said that a little bit when we were doing Genesis, when we said that there's a number of different creation stories out there, um, and it seems as though they are aware of each other, and some of them are used or reworked. Now, in the case of Daniel, though, uh, there's some elements that are very obscure, and there's some elements here that are very cryptic, and I think... Part of that, and it, it's a, 
uh, is true with the book of Revelation as well. Part of the hiddenness or secrecy or obscurity or the strangeness of the language there is if it is told like First and Second Samuel or First and Second Kings, more historical type books, um, it could endanger the community. And so some of the things that are written here are to safeguard the community that it is supposed to be encouraging. Uh, some other things that are interesting as well is uh, at the bottom of the screen there, um, there's nowhere in the book that claims Daniel wrote the book. So it's uh, a pseudo uh, type of book. It's using the name of Daniel, but he, it's unlikely he's the author. The other thing is this idea of the book of Daniel seems to be kind of hidden away within the Hebrew community and used in a time of emergency. And that's why the book of Daniel is found in the Qumran literature of the Dead Sea Scrolls. It seems as though um, the Essenes that uh, pulled away from culture uh, cherished the book of Daniel because they felt that it was describing something that was going to occur within their lifetime and they needed to draw upon this material to get through some tough times. Uh, last thing here is um, it seems as though the book or the final version of it is not finalized until the second century BCE. So sixth century BCE is when Daniel is purported to be taken to Babylon, but it seems as though the book is not finalized until uh, much later. So one of the things that has been said about the book of Daniel is it's the first example of Apocrypha. So the, the books that are between the Old and New Testament are very similar, and Daniel fits some of that characteristic as well. And the Apocrypha seems to have a unifying theme. And the message it's trying to convey is that God is sovereign over history and over foreign kings. Don't give up. Don't uh, lose hope because God is still in control. And it seems as though they collected this material and cherished it because it was getting th uh, them through some very tough times. Okay, let me stop there. Do you have any thoughts, questions, comments? Now, the name Daniel is uh, mentioned a couple of different places, um, and scholars debate about whether this is the same Daniel of the book of Daniel or not. And you'll find that um, he appears uh, first in Ezekiel uh, and then in uh, one of the apocryphal books uh, called First Enoch. So let me, I've written these out for you so you can see it here. So notice it says here, the Ezekiel reference 1414, even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, they could save only themselves by their righteousness, declares the Lord. As surely as I live, verse 20, declares the sovereign Lord, even if Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, they could save neither son nor daughter. They would only save themselves by their righteousness. 
So that might be a reference. Um, uh, but there is also in uh, ancient literature uh, another uh, spelling uh, of the name Daniel. And, and so scholars debate upon whether this is uh, the same Daniel as what we find in the book. Then in First Enoch, I won't read all of this, but you'll see highlighted there, uh, uh, Daniel is mentioned twice, once in verse 7 of chapter 6 and once in verse 2 of chapter 69. So this might be um, a reference to Daniel. It might not be a reference to the Daniel that we find in the book of Daniel. What we do know, though, is Daniel being taken uh, into exile as presented, and we'll see this next uh, Wednesday when we look at chapter one, he is an individual that is a part of the court of the king. Um, he is a part of an elite group of uh, individuals that have potential to serve the court. Uh, what we find in chapters one through six is he becomes prominent, just like Joseph did back in the book of Genesis. And uh, he not only serves in the court of Babylon, but later in the Medo-Persian empire as well. He is an individual that is believed to be a priest um, as well. So if there's any way of maybe describing Daniel, it might be better to call him part of a priestly elite class, uh, even more so than a prophet. Um, what we find is that Daniel, it does seem to make these mysterious revelations, but at the same time, uh, he seems to be an interpreter of current dreams that Nebuchadnezzar is having. Uh, in Hebrew, his name means God is the defender of my right. And um, that is a similar uh, reference to what Rachel says when she finally has a child back in Genesis 30, verse 6. So what authors are struggling with is, is this an actual historical person or is this uh, a part of a national hero that is being presented for a later audience. We'll let that sit uh, and we'll deal with that when we, as we work through the book. But uh, it does seem to become legendary. And that's why in the two different eras, the sixth century and the second century, it seems as though Daniel, historical person, but more than a historical person that becomes a national hero of what it means to be a Torah-observing Jew, uh, then becomes the encouragement to a later audience not to give up in their efforts to keep their religion and their faith in place. Thoughts there? Anyone? David comes much later? No, David is earlier. Earlier than yeah. Daniel? Mm -hmm. Yes. So uh, in the chronology of things, um, David uh, is the first, uh, or not the first, the second king of Israel, and his story is told in First and Second Samuel, and uh, Daniel comes much later. Um, you don't really have 
the idea of the Babylonian exile in the historical books of the Old Testament until you get to the end of the book of Second Kings. So you have first and second Samuel, first and second Kings. So David's much earlier. Is there is there um, a reason why you? Okay. No, because he's a hero and he's represents all of that. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Anybody else? So in in terms of authorship, and we'll just leave it at this for now. Um. An interesting dynamic in the book, again, double mint gum, two, two, and one. Um, there is part of the book written in the third person, and part of the book is written in the first person. The question comes up, are these the same authors? Um, did Daniel write part of it in first person? Did a later editor write the other part of it when the third person is being used? Daniel very well could be the author of this, or at least parts of it. Um, he would be a little bit older by the time he would write it, in his mid-80s probably. Uh, Cyrus, another king that he served in the court, um, lived from 536 to 5, uh, or uh, that date's got to be wrong, the reign of Cyrus, 536 to 535. I think it's a little bit longer than that. I might have, might have mistyped that. But um, anyways, um, it Cyrus is the one that allows the Jewish people to go back to their homeland and even encourages them to rebuild their temple. Uh, Daniel overlaps uh, from Nebuchadnezzar to Cyrus. If he is not the author, the main message is not lost. Uh, what it does do, though, for us is help us understand how something that was happening in an earlier time is being reused at a later time. It seems as though the author uh, wrote parts of this book while he was actually watching the persecutions of Antiochus Epiphanes. And um, some of the scholars speak of some of the Maccabean authors that write some of the Apocrypha uh, being the ones that oversaw the court tales that were handed down orally for a number of years and saw that they were written down. So some of this stuff can be legend that was passed down until it was written down. And then the Maccabean editors, if you will, um, would not only write that down, but could even add some additional material that is pertinent to their own uh, setting and their own situation. Okay, here's a chart here uh, that basically uh, says what I told you before. So chapter one of Daniel's written in Hebrew, two through seven Aramaic and eight through 12 Hebrew. Chapters one through seven is narrative, it's prose, it's story. And then eight through 12 is where you have the apocalyptic uh, element. Now, it is the apocalyptic element that has uh, been used um, for much of the left behind material. Uh, when we get there, we'll talk a little bit about the 70 weeks of Daniel, uh, what that represents um, within dispensational theology. 
Um, it is believed that the first 69 weeks of Daniel has been fulfilled, but we're still waiting for the 70th week to be fulfilled. And that's where it's uh, collated with the book of Revelation. So we'll get to that when we get to that. But apocalyptic literature is a genre first. And when you think about it being written in times of crisis, Daniel's really the only true apocalyptic type of book in the Old Testament. The book of Revelation is the only one in the New Testament. And you do have some other elements of apocalyptic uh, uh, appearances, some in Ezekiel and uh, some other places, but none as prominent as Daniel. So with that, the other thing to kind of keep in mind is this is a work of art. I've told you before on different occasions that a literary technique uh, that is used in the Bible is called chiasm. Uh, chiasm, as you can see here, uh, is a repetition of similar ideas in reverse sequence. That's a good definition of what a chiasm is. And it is um, here that you see the parallels. Chapter one is in parallel with uh, actually the last um, the last chapters of the book. But when you get to the middle of it here in chapter two, it is uh, something that is in parallel to chapter seven, chapter three in parallel to six, and four in parallel to five. So you have four kingdoms, and then God's kingdom is established in chapter two. It's the same thing in chapter seven. You have a spotlight on the faithful servants, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in chapter three, and a spotlight on one faithful servant, Daniel, in chapter six. And then you see the kings that are opposing God in chapter four and five, Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar. And so you can see it; these things are written in parallel fashion. Chapters 8 through 12 is a little bit different. It kind of corresponds to chapter 1, but it encompasses the remaining chapters. And within those remaining chapters, you have a, another sub-chiasm. Uh, you have in chapter 8 um, a ruler that is opposing God's people. And the same thing in chapter 12, uh, 10 through 12. And in the middle is that really, really strange uh, prediction of the 70 weeks or 77s. Um, now, that's something that um, has been used to create a lot of end time charts. So uh, Clarence Larkin and some other authors have really gone overboard in trying to detail this and then um, some authors try to use that 77s as a way of trying to predict the return of Christ. Um, it seems as though that really is taking something outside of maybe the entire message of the book of Daniel. So we got to keep the whole thing in mind, more than just one chapter of it. And so we'll we'll do, deal with that when we come to it. Any thoughts? Okay, so two, two, and one. 
the two and one, you have two historical periods. In chapters one through six, it's the Babylonians that had conquered Judah and taken the people back to Babylon. And I'll show you by way of a map here. So here is the territory that Babylon conquered. Here is the center of Babylon. Uh, and all the way over here is Jerusalem. So in three invasions under Nebuchadnezzar, uh, Jerusalem is invaded because the Jewish people are in the middle of a power struggle between Babylon and Egypt down here. So this is a long story. Historically, they choose to try to side with the opposite um, empire. And Nebuchadnezzar chooses to invade Judah and Jerusalem. And he takes with him a number of exiles back to Babylon, which is like 900 miles away. So it's not close at all. And here you have Jewish exiles and refugees that will live uh, for about 70 years in this territory here. Now, that's not the only place, though, you find Jewish exiles. Uh, you'll find that because they're kind of caught in the middle of the Fertile Crescent here, um, there are some that are taken as exiles and refugees down into Egypt. And there's one here uh, down toward the very um, uh, south of uh, Egypt, is Elephantine. And there are some writings that come from Elephantine that um, have been used to compare with the uh, Old Testament. And this is where some of the other stories arise too, some of the legendary tales from Elephantine. So you can see there are uh, uh, Jewish exiles and refugees in different spots. But what the Old Testament primarily focuses on is the refugees and exiles here in Babylon. Because the Jews continued to resist Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian Empire, by the third invasion, Jerusalem is pretty much wiped out and the temple is destroyed. There are people that are left behind there, but uh, now the Jewish people and their survival really depends upon some of those that have been taken back to Babylon. And it's Daniel and others like him that's trying to keep Torah observance alive. So finally, when Babylon is conquered by the Medo-Persian Empire, so over here's Persia and here's Media, when this empire comes and conquers Babylon, they allow these Jewish exiles to return back to their homeland under Ezra and Nehemiah to rebuild the temple and the city walls. And there's others that stay behind. They, they made a life for themselves under the more favorable and uh, benevolent rule of the Medo-Persian kings. And so they stay behind there. So it's a small remnant that will, will return back here. But it is here in Babylon that you find Daniel and others like Daniel that are trying to keep Torah observance alive so that they won't be lost uh, to uh, their identity as uh, uh, God's chosen people. So that's really kind of what's going on in 
uh, this period of time from 605 uh, to 539 BCE. And there's three deportations, 605, 597, 586. Now, when you get to chapters 8 through 12, you fast forward. And what you find in uh, that section of the book is a description, really, of the time of Alexander the Great's empire. Um, he is an individual that comes behind the Medo-Persian empire. And Alexander the Great defeats Persia. His, um, his empire is massive. And so uh, he, uh, he's an amazing individual, holds this massive empire together. But he dies in 323 BCE. And he dies at about the age, he dies in his 30s. He's a very young man when he dies. And he has four generals that divide up the land. Uh, between Greece and Macedon, Thrace and Asia Minor, Egypt and Judea, Syria and Babylon. So we go back again to that. Um, so you have these areas to the south, you have areas uh, to the east, uh, you have some areas to the north and so forth. So they divide up this land. And as they do so, what they uh, what we find is these four generals will become the dominant um, rulers in these territories. Again, what you find is that Jerusalem here is caught in the middle of these different generals and their different rules and their different um, desire for expansion of power. So a, a lot is going on. That's all I'm trying to tell you. You don't have to remember all this, but there's a lot that's going on. And it seems as though the book breaks down with these court tales in chapters one through six that are being recorded for the people that are living in this era of time under Hellenization. That is Greek rule and the desire to impose Greek culture upon those that have been defeated. Does that make sense to everybody? Or have I left you confused? So two historical periods, one that it seems to be recorded for another. Okay, so that brings us to the chronology of the book. Um, the book of Daniel opens with a chronological indication. Verse one says, in the third year of the reign of King Jehoiakim of Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it. So that's a that's a um, notation historically, and then what you find is uh, outside of the book of Daniel, you have these other things that uh, have happened historically, uh, leading to Hellenism under Alexander the Great's um, rule and desire to, um, to impose Greek culture. Now, the early chapters reflect this imperial ruler that when we get into chapters one and two, he seems to be a little bit paranoid and impulsive. And some of the things he demands of his court uh, is impossible uh, for them to be able uh, to give answers to. So, for example, we'll see next week that... Um, he asked the magicians at his court 
uh, to tell him his dream and to interpret it and uh, some different things like that. Um, that's actually chapter two. Got ahead of myself there. But he seems to be impulsive. And sometimes he seems to be a little bit ignorant, which makes him dangerous. Um, that, though, seems to not only characterize him, but also characterize a man by the name of Antiochus IV, also called Epiphanes. And um, that seems to be the uh, description of what's going on in the second half of the book by some of the terminology that is used. For example, um, the author seems to know of this individual who profaned the temple. So let me show you Antiochus Epiphanes. Here we go. Um, and this is a bust of Antiochus Epiphanes. And he believed he had the right to attack any nation or group of people that needed to be Hellenized. And uh, the Jews fell under that description. And one of the things that Antiochus Epiphanes did was he set himself up as God and put a statue of himself as Zeus, one of the Greek gods, in the Jewish temple. So that's a desecration of the temple. Furthermore, he slaughters a pig on the altar, an unclean animal. And as he desecrates the temple by doing so to uh, embarrass the Jewish people, um, to intimidate them and control them, this became known as the abomination of desolation. And this particular um, effort of Antiochus Epiphanes was to try to get um, the Jews to quit following Yahweh and start to worship the Greek gods and goddesses. Well, because of his actions, there was a play on word uh, words of Antiochus. So the Jews did not call him Epiphanes, the great one. Uh, they used a very similar word, Antiochus Epimenes, uh, very close, but the word Epimenes means fool or madman. So it is kind of a play on words there uh, of what he did to the people. And what's interesting here is when we get to chapter 11, the author knows of the abomination of desolation, but just a few verses later, it appears as though he's not aware that Antiochus has died. So um, inter interesting dynamic uh, takes place. Um, he's unaware also so this is probably written before uh, the purification of the temple under Judas Maccabeus on uh, December the 14th, 164 BCE, thus being the date for what? Hanukkah. Okay, that's the celebration of Hanukkah. And so it appears as though the one that has written this uh, is aware of what's going on, but has finished his writings before other historical events have occurred. Does that make sense? Okay. So you're beginning to see why this is a difficult book to, to figure out. And 
because it is difficult to figure out these moving parts, um, it's easy to manipulate it into a system of theology where you get it to say what you want it to say. We're going to try our very best not to do that, but um, it, it can and does happen all the time. All right, so I'm coming to the end and I want to uh, show you a, a short video at the very end. This information here uh, about Alexander, um, I just mentioned a little bit before, except for the fact that there are two dominant groups, the Ptolemies and the Seleucids, that are the main contenders for control over uh, Palestine under these four generals. Uh, there's a battle that takes place. There's a lot of historical elements there. But by this time, um, the Jewish people have been greatly influenced by Greek culture. And as I've told you this a number of times, they've lost their ability to understand Hebrew. And that's why the Old Testament is translated into Greek. And that is known as the Septuagint. Um, what is interesting, though, what occurs during this time of Hellenization is there is a group that is a reactionary group uh, called the Hasidim, which means the faithful, who were producing some of these daring leaders that were wanting to push back on, um, on, on the Greek rule and later the Roman rule as well. And probably the most famous is the guy, Judas Maccabeus, and he is the individual that provides the leadership. The Hasidim, this group known as the Faithful, seem to have influenced this community in Qumran that um, saved the Dead Sea Scrolls in the jars in the caves. So this is a very apocalyptic type of group because they think that the end time is at hand and God is going to break into history and bring us his kingdom. So here we are several thousand years later, and we're still looking at this material. And obviously um, their expectations of what was going to happen in history um, was not um, uh, fulfilled, but um, we still look at it and wrestle with it. Last thing here, and then I'm gonna show you the video for our time. The word apocalypse is used to cover um, a specific kind of literature. And the apocalyptic genre uh, is very visionary. And it's um, it uses a lot of figures of speech and it uses a lot of metaphors. Um, and what you see in the second half of the book of Daniel, there's a lot of that. There's these beasts uh, that are in the second half of the book. Um, much like the book of Revelation, a lot of strange mixture, combinations of different types of wildlife and different things like that. We'll, we'll talk to, about that when we get to it. Um, but here's what I think is really at the heart of apocalyptic literature. Apocalyptic truth belongs to an eschatological absolute. It's a belief that God is going to mark the end of history and he's going to bring his kingdom uh, about. So in apocalyptic literature, there's the expectation kind of of a, a, a midnight, if you will, when the clock strikes 12, God's going to break into history. And this history is going to be 
uh, characterized by these several things, the vindication of the righteous ones, the Gentiles will be converted to believe in Israel's God. There will be a new Jerusalem as the center of the earth. There will be the resurrection of some, and then a final and definitive fate of humanity and of the universe. So that marks a character of apocalyptic uh, literature. And uh, again, Daniel and Revelation are the two books in our Bible that fit that description. But there is other material out there uh, that's not in the Bible that fit that description as well. So that's a lot of heavy material I gave to you. And that's why I let, left this video uh, to end our time tonight, because he does a lot better job of simplifying what's in the book of Daniel. So let's take a look at it, and then we'll close our time uh, at uh, after the video's done. The book of Daniel. The story set right after Babylon's first attack on Jerusalem, and they had plundered the city and its temple and taken a wave of Israelites into exile. Among them were four men from the royal family of David, Daniel, who's later named Belteshazzar, and his three friends, who you probably know by their Babylonian names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. This book tells of their struggles to maintain hope in the land of their conquerors. The book's design seems pretty simple at first. Chapters 1 through 6 contain stories about Daniel and his friends in Babylon, while chapters 7 through 12 contain the visions of Daniel about the future. But this two-part shape is made even more interesting by another design feature, and that's the book's language. It begins in Hebrew, the language of the Israelites, but chapters 2 through 7 are written in Aramaic, a cousin language to Hebrew spoken widely among the ancient empires. But then in chapters 8 through 12, it goes back to Hebrew. This design shows how chapters 2 through 7 are a coherent section, but it also highlights the importance of chapters 2 and 7 for understanding the later chapters of the book. Let's just dive in. Chapter 1 introduces the basic tension of the first half of the book. Daniel and his friends, they're really wise and capable, and they're recruited to serve in the royal palace of Babylon. But they're pressured to give up their Jewish identity by living and eating like Babylonians and violating the Jewish food laws found in the Torah. So they refuse, and they choose faithfulness to the Torah, and it puts them in danger. But God delivers them, and they end up being elevated by the king of Babylon. After this begins the Aramaic section, which you'll see has this really cool symmetrical design. So first, the king of Babylon has a dream that, it turns out, only Daniel is able to interpret. It's about a huge statue made of four types of metal, and it symbolizes a sequence of kingdoms, and the head is Babylon. But then a huge rock comes flying in, and it shatters the statue, and it becomes this huge mountain. Now this dream is the first of many symbolic visions in the book, and this one introduces the basic storyline of them all. Daniel says that the statue represents a train of human kingdoms following from Babylon, and they will all fill God's world with violence. But one day, God's kingdom will come, and will confront and humble the arrogant kingdoms of this world, and fill the world with the healing justice of God's reign and rule. After this, chapter 3 tells the famous story of Daniel's three friends who refuse to bow down and worship a huge idol statue, which, like the statue in chapter 2, represents the king and his imperial power. And so the friends are persecuted, they're thrown into a fiery furnace, but God delivers them from death and they're exalted by the king who now acknowledges their God as the true one. After this come a pair of stories about two Babylonian kings, the father, Nebuchadnezzar, and then his son, Belshazzar. 
They're both filled with pride because of their imperial power. And so, like in chapter 2, God warns them both through dreams and then visions, which, also like chapter 2, only Daniel can interpret. He says that both kings are to humble themselves before God, and both kings arrogantly resist. So Nebuchadnezzar is stricken with madness. He becomes like a beast in the field. But then he humbles himself before God, and his humanity returns to him. He's restored as king. This is in contrast with his son, Belshazzar, who doesn't humble himself before God, and he's assassinated that very night. Now, these two stories draw this imagery from Genesis chapters 1 and 2 and Psalm 8, where humans are depicted as the royal image of God. He's given them authority to rule over the beasts of the field and the birds of the air on behalf of God, who is the world's true king. But when human kingdoms forget that, when they rebel and make themselves and their power into a God, they become less than human, like violent beasts who will face God's justice. Which brings us to chapter 6, the pair of chapter 3. And this time it's Daniel who's being persecuted because he refuses to pray and worship the king as a god. And so like the friends, he's sentenced to death and he's thrown into a lion's den. But God delivers him from the beasts and like the friends, the king exalts Daniel and praises his god. Which brings us to chapter 7. It's the pair of chapter 2 and the center of the book where all its themes come together. It's another dream, but it's Daniel's this time. And ironically, he can't understand the dream until an angelic messenger explains it to him. He sees a series of four beasts, one like a lion, then like a bear, then one like a winged leopard, each of these symbolizing an arrogant kingdom. And last of all is a super beast identified as a really evil empire, and it has lots of horns, a common symbol for kings in the Old Testament. And there's one specific horn who is an image of an arrogant king who exalts himself above God and persecutes God's people. Now they are symbolized by a figure called the Son of Man, who's an image for both God's covenant people, but also for their king from the line of David. But then all of a sudden, God, who's called the Ancient of Days, comes and he sets up his throne. He destroys the super beast and he exalts the Son of Man on the clouds where he comes up to sit at God's right hand and share in God's rule over the nations. We can look back now and see how all of these stories in the first half fit together. The three stories of faithfulness despite persecution, these are meant to offer hope to God's suffering people among the nations. But they suffer because human kingdoms have rebelled against God and have become beasts. And so these visions encourage patience, that God's people are to wait for him to bring his kingdom and rule over our world and vindicate his suffering people. But it raises the question about when God is going to do that, and that that's what these final three visions set out to explore. In chapter 8, Daniel has another vision about the final two beasts of chapter 7, but this time they're symbolized by a ram, who we're told is the image of the empire of the Medes and Persians, and then by a goat, who's an image of ancient Greece. And out of the goat come a whole bunch of horns, one of which symbolizes the evil king from chapter 7. And we're told more about him, that he will attack Jerusalem and exalt himself above God and defile the temple with idols. However, in the end, he will be destroyed by God, who will exalt his people and his kingdom. Now by chapter 9, Daniel is very puzzled, especially as to when all of this is going to take place. And so he consults the scroll of the prophet Jeremiah, where God said that Israel's exile would only last 70 years. So for Daniel, the 70 years is almost up. And so he asks God to fulfill his promise soon. But an angel comes and informs him that Israel's sin and rebellion has continued. And so their time of exile and oppression will continue on seven times longer than Jeremiah envisioned. 
Daniel is deeply disturbed by this, and he has one final vision. We're shown the same sequence of kingdoms. It's Persia, then Greece, and Alexander the Great, followed by lesser kings, all leading up to this final king of the north, who will invade Jerusalem, set up idols in the temple, and exalt himself above God. But then, all of a sudden, this king comes to ruin. Now, there's been endless debate about what all of these visions refer to. Many see a clear connection to the exploits of the Syrian king Antiochus in the 160s BC. He killed many faithful Jews in Jerusalem and set up idols in the temple. Others think it points forward to the Roman Empire's role in the execution of Jesus and the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in AD 70. And still others think it will be fulfilled in future events that have yet to happen when Jesus will return. Now the problem is that the symbols and the numbers, they don't quite match any of these views perfectly. But it opens up the possibility that in a sense they are all right. The book of Daniel has been designed to offer hope to all future generations of God's people. It did so in the days of Antiochus' empire, and it has ever since. This is why Jesus could use imagery from Daniel to describe and confront the oppressive leaders he confronted in Jerusalem. This is why John, the visionary who wrote the Revelation, could adapt Daniel's vision. and apply them to Rome of his day and also all future oppressive empires. And so the point of Daniel is that all generations of readers can find here a pattern and a promise. It's a pattern that human beings and their kingdoms become violent beasts when they glorify their own power, when they redefine right and wrong and don't acknowledge God as their true king. But Daniel also holds out a promise that one day God will confront the beast. He will rescue his world and his people by bringing his kingdom over all nations. And so for every generation, this book speaks a message of hope that should motivate faithfulness. And that's what the book of Daniel is all about. <clears throat> okay. So, there's a lot of things that were introduced tonight. I think the Bible Project always does a great job of summarizing content in the books. And um, you can always go to thebibleproject.com if you want to see that um, particular video again, or if you want to print out that uh, diagram that was drawn along with the video, uh, they have a PDF there that you could actually print out if you wanted to. So let me see if you have any uh, questions, any comments as we wind down for tonight. Uh, we're going to slow down. We're going to look at one chapter each week. And um, tonight was just basically putting the foundation in place. Any thoughts? It's open. Mm -hmm. It's just, it's, it appears more complex after listening to all this than <laughs> most of us would be alive. Face value. Yeah. Well, yep. that's true of every book in the Bible. And um, yeah. a lot of times it it's simplified on Sunday mornings. What a lot of times uh, pastors do not tell you is there's multiple, multiple viewpoints uh, by scholars that wrestle with this type of material. Um, a lot of times um, churches pick a particular viewpoint on something and then that's what they try to continue to uh you know teach and preach and that type of thing but if you really want to dig your fingers into the bible you'll find that 
nothing is quite that simple or straightforward. Uh, I don't care what book of the Bible you're talking about. There's always elements of it that are more complex that most people have never been exposed to. But that should humble us because we're always in the process of learning. It should humble us because none of us are right 100% on uh, the the content uh, that we find in the Bible. There's no one that's, because some of it is just so very difficult and even mysterious at times. But When I say that the, the, the book was, you know, the first chapters, like the Hebrew and then it's just, the next three are Aramaic and the next are what, Greek? How, how does that, I, mean, I don't quite understand how, I mean, if you found this in the scrolls or how, how did they determine that? Yeah, some of it has to do with um, the particular scrolls that were found, like in the Dead Sea Scrolls, but others are the existing manuscripts um, that um, scribes faithfully uh, copied. And so when it when it comes to the Old Testament, uh, what you have is uh, monks, basically, scribes that would copy these uh, and they would do their very best in trying to uh, keep the older scrolls. Now, one thing that they did that I wish they hadn't done is when they copied new scrolls, they disposed of old scrolls that had uh, holes and or smeared ink or that type of thing. So what's difficult in textual criticism is determining what are the older readings and that's why um, the Dead Sea Scrolls is so important. It was an important find because it took that uh, those readings back a generation or so uh, from what we had. Um, so scholars also know that um, they know the, the flow of history in terms of, for example, Hebrew chapter one, Aramaic chapters two through six, and then back to Hebrew that Aramaic was a, a later development. And so it, it they there's a lot of theories. And just like scientists propose different theories, and, it, and in this case, the theory is, ah, the reason it's recorded in Aramaic is they're taking oral tradition and putting it down in, in the language that was popular at the time. And then you have other materials that had been uh, held and preserved, and some of those things are reflected in actual Hebrew. And then you get even more complicated when you introduce the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So there's all of these things that scholars really have to sort through. And some of it is historical in terms of what they have found, like the Dead Sea Scrolls or other archaeological findings. Some of it is traditional. Some of it is the scrolls that are being held in museums that have been uh, used uh, for um, research and that type of thing. So there's not an easy answer to that, really, bud. Um, it, 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 there's a lot of things that are mixed into that. But the the idea is chapters two through six of Daniel, um, what they find most of is that's Aramaic, while the other part is Hebrew. And and that, so, again, theories, basically, why is that so? What It reflects a later time uh, than 
the time of Daniel himself uh, during the time of Nebuchadnezzar. Sure. So I wish I could answer that clearly. Uh, some some of it is very complicated, and I mean, some of it is beyond my knowledge base too. I mean, you, these are individuals that study in the original languages. Uh, <laughs> that's what they do all the time as as researchers and stuff. So, you know, that's beyond my ability. Other questions, comments? Well, that community of Qumran I've seen, and it was actually set up so that the people wouldn't be attacked. Mm -hmm. You know, like if they were attacked, then they had all their food, they had all their water yeah. stuff. I think they eventually were attacked, but it, it was... It was interesting to see, you know, how they had everything set up. Yeah, I mean, they they are kind of one of the original bunker type of hunker down in 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 a shelter type of. That's why yeah. much of their community was situated in the caves, and that's where these scrolls were that were found. Well, it was on top of a hill too. Yeah, I mean, they right. they built it on the so that. You know, they would be less attacked, but I think that eventually they were. Right. I mean, that was a few years ago I went there. <laughs> Excellent. That's cool. 40, that must have been 40 really some neat. years. That must have been neat to see. Oh, there was. Yeah. That whole, that whole trip was cool. It was like, well, you're, going, you're going to Israel later this year, aren't you, bud? Yeah. September. Yeah, will you mm. get to see some some of the sites while you're there? Do you have excursions to some of yeah, the Yeah, we areas? do. Yeah. That's Jerusalem cool. Jerusalem and Bethlehem. Uh-huh. Dead cool. Sea. Yeah. Cool. Oh, that's yeah, that's I mean, <laughs> I've been in it and you can float, but it's you just feel ooh after you know, like you need a shower. <laughs> you're not going to die. <laughs> it's all that minerals and it's all, it's all salt salt. whatever stuff. Yeah. So you it go. Must, that must be quite an experience for sure. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you all go right. Jerusalem. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Cool. And okay. I walked through. I okay. walked through That's the right. Kidron Valley at night. Oh, nice. <laughs> And our guide said, because that was the shortest distance to get across to the old city. So, and our guide said, you could have fallen in somebody's grave. <laughs> <laughs> but we did. So watch I your mean, step. That's what Beth is saying. Watch your step. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Don't go across the valley. I mean, you know. Right. <laughs> All right. We'll call it a night. And then uh, if you have a chance to read chapter one of Daniel sometime this week, that's what we're going to look at next week. Okay. Okay. Right. Okay. Thanks, Larry. Yeah, you bet. Good night. Bye. 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 Bye.